Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21? And we're going to continue a message we began last week called the Temple of God. And uh, we're going to pick it up in verse 12 of Matthew 21. And Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Now, as we pointed out last week, here Jesus cleanses the temple. Some think he did it only once, and John records it at the beginning of his gospel, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke record it at the end. Others say he cleansed the temple twice. I think to be on the safe side, we're just going to go with the fact that he cleansed it or with the uh, interpretation that he cleansed it twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry as recorded in John chapter 2, and then again at the end of his ministry as recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But last week we talked about the temple. The temple was a place where animal sacrifices were brought to the priests who then offered them for the sins of the people. The blood of those animals atoned for their sins. And why was that important? Because without the shedding of blood, there could be no remission of sin. God told Israel in Leviticus 17, verse 11, I have given you the animal on the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. So when sin was committed, someone had to die. Someone or something had to die. God in the Old Covenant allowed for an animal to die in their place. So the animal sacrifices allowed man's sin to be covered, where that man and God could come together for the purpose of fellowship. But the temple was also a place of worship and prayer. But it had one more important function. As we studied last week, the temple sat on what is known today as the Temple Mount. But to get to the Temple Mount, you had to go through a series of courts. The lowest and the one farthest away from the actual temple building was called the Outer Court or the Court of the Gentiles. And this was the place that God had set aside for Gentile seekers to come and learn more about, the, more about the God of Israel in order to possibly convert to the Jewish faith. And this was supposed to be a place of reverence and prayer. But instead, the Sadducees and chief priests who owned this, these animal concessions and so on, and the money changers, uh, they had turned it into a place of merchandising and thievery. And so Jesus cleansed it. He cleansed it so that it could be used again for the purpose God designed it. Now, what about the temple in our day? That's a look at the temple in Jesus' day. What about the temple of God in our day? And I know some would say, wait a minute. There is no temple of God in our day. The temple of God in Jerusalem is gone. It was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And that's true. But as we pointed out last week, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that God today dwells in the temple of his church. Of his church. And I think that's the spiritual application to this passage. That we not just look at it as what happened 2,000 years ago in the temple in Jerusalem. But what is the Holy Spirit wanting to teach us today? Because the church is the temple of the living God. 
And we are all living stones, Peter says. Once we get saved, we are being fit into a holy habitation for the Spirit of God. So we are uh, his temple. And last week we saw how that it wasn't until Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem from all the corruption that it could become all that God designed the temple to be. The same is true at the church. If Jesus were alive today, I'm convinced he would go into many churches and begin to clean some house. There's a lot of stuff going on in churches today that ought not to be. What is the church to be if it's going to be all that God intended it to be? Well, last week we looked at, what, first of all, what the church is not to be. And, we, and this is not an exhaustive study, guys. I'm just taking from the passage what I see here. There's a lot more we could add here, but let's just stay with the... There's plenty here that we can feast our minds on and think about, right? First of all, what is the church or the temple of God today not to be? What we learned last week, first of all, the church is not to be a place where the worship of God is exploited into a money-making enterprise. This is what was going on last, as we studied last week, that the Sadducees and the chief priests who were in cahoots uh, were ripping people off who had come to worship God. You see, a lot of these pilgrims were coming to Jerusalem from so far away, it wasn't feasible to drag animals to sacrifice to the Lord. So in the outer court, they began to sell animals for sacrifice. Nothing wrong with that on the face of it. It's just that they were ripping the people off, charging up to ten times the going rate for the same animal out in the street. And if you brought your own animal, the priests were instructed to, to, to go over it with a fine-tooth comb until they found the smallest defect or flaw. They could reject it, and then you'd be forced to buy one of the pre-approved kosher animals at the overinflated price. And they were just, again, ripping people off who wanted to worship God. Same was true with the, the money changers. People came, they wanted to pay their temple tax or give an offering to God of money. But the Sadducees and the chief priests said, well, you can't do that with Roman currency. It's defiled. You've got to give to God with temple shekels. Well, great, fine. No, no harm there. The problem was they were charging exorbitant exchange rates to turn people's coinage from Roman coin into temple shekels. Again, ripping people off who had come to, to worship God. And Jesus was so furious that this was going on, that he drove them out. And the same is true today. The, the church is not to be a place where there is merchandising going on, where a church is basically capitalizing. I mean, I, I heard of one church in the area uh, that whenever somebody signed up for a conference or something else, they then took those names, addresses, and emails and sold them to companies to mark, so that the companies could market to these folks, but the church got paid for that without even telling their people we were going to do that. That is so wrong. When you give us your private information, you can be sure of one thing. We're not going to sell it to anybody. We're not going to make merchandise of you guys. That is so terrible. But it goes on all the time. Number two, the church today is not to be a place where leaders are greedy men that look at ministry as a way to get wealthy. I don't think we need to drive this home too far. It's pretty obvious. You can't turn on Christian TV without seeing these characters everywhere. So the Sadducees and chief priests were greedy, corrupt men who turned the worship of God into a money-making venture, and that is why Jesus referred to the temple in his day as a den of thieves. Not a very flattering thing for the temple to be referred to as. Not a very flattering thing for Jesus to come today and say to some churches, you know, 
this is supposed to be a holy place, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. Wow. All right, that's just a quick look at what the church is not to be. Certainly, we could add to that list many other things, but I think those are two of the big ones, okay? But what is the church, which is the temple of God today, what is it to be? Well, first, and very simply, the church is to be a house of prayers, we've already said. In verse 12, we read again, when Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Let me just stop there. Jesus is quoting from what we know as Isaiah 56, verse 7. And twice in that one verse, God says his temple, his house, was to be a house of prayer. Now notice, he didn't say it should be called a house of business networking. So a lot of people that pick churches, big churches, because they can make business contacts. They can network uh, with their business, network with other people, build up their clientele. It's all about making a buck, which is why they choose large churches to attend. It really isn't about the teaching or or whatever else. It's really about how many people they can connect with business-wise and uh, expand their business or build up a clientele. The church is not to be called a house of business networking, nor is it a house of self-help programs. Good heavens, the church has turned into a glorified self-help program today. The church is not to be a house of counseling primarily. It's not to be a house of entertainment. The Lord Jesus said his house was to be called a house of prayer. Now, certainly, the church is more than just prayer. We know from Acts 2.42 that the early church, it says, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, was the teaching of the word, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. All of these are legitimate and important functions of the local church. But by saying God's house primarily is to be a house of prayer, Jesus Christ was emphasizing a very important point. And that is our loving Heavenly Father desires, listen, He desires to commune with us and to meet our needs, which is the way He demonstrates His love to us. And prayer becomes the open window. Prayer opens the windows of heaven and allows God to pour out upon our lives all that He desires to give to us. Prayer is a very important thing. We go to God because we we need things from Him, and that's not wrong. In fact, prayer... If it's done right and you come together with a humble heart, you're acknowledging your dependency upon God. That's very important. An independent spirit is something God does not bless. God resists the problem and gives grace to the humble. But also prayer brings us into direct contact with God and allows his power to flow from him into and through our lives. You remember, of course, what James said in James 5.16. He said, confess your sins to each other. And pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. I don't think I need to underscore to this group the importance of prayer. Look, no great work of God has ever been accomplished apart from prayer. And no great work for God will ever be done apart from prayer. I'm talking about in your walk with God, in your marriage, with your children, in this church, in our nation. Prayer is essential. And yet, prayer has become the neglected weapon of the Christian arsenal. 
In fact, one pastor put it this way. He said, and I quote, he said, churches today are packed for concerts or potlucks or special events, but an ounce of prayer meeting and a few faithful saints trickle in. Now, I am very blessed at our church because if you knew with us, you may not realize, but twice a year we shut down all studies, all groups, and for five days straight we come into the church here and we fast and we pray. We fast five days praying every night uh, for those five days, Monday through Friday, and we break our fast on Friday evening at the end of our prayer time with communion. And every time we have, set, we have entered into a week of fasting and prayer, the prayer room is almost always packed. There's a lot to be said about a praying church, okay? A lot to be said about a praying church. Somebody has said that you can tell how popular a pastor is by who shows up on Sunday morning. How many come, come out to church? You can see how popular a church is by who comes on Wednesday nights. But you can always tell how popular Jesus is by how many show up to the prayer meetings. And we see many people at our prayer meetings. But for the most part, the church in America in general is powerless. Why is it so powerless? Because it's so prayerless. Now the word prayer in verse 13 in the Greek is the general word for prayer and simply means making requests known to the Lord. Making requests known to the Lord. But this Greek word has a little nuance to it, a little shade of meaning that goes beyond that. And the idea is it also kind of carries with it the idea of adoration, devotion, and worship. Prayer can be a form of worship. Because as we're praying to God, we're not only asking for things, we are magnifying Him. We are exalting Him. And that's a form of worship. So guys, not only is the church to be a house of prayer, it's also to be a house of worship. However, that's not all either. Because when Mark records this incident, when he records Jesus quoting from Isaiah 56, verse 7, he quotes the entire thing. Here's what Jesus said in Mark eleven seventeen. Here's what he said fully. He said, My house shall be called a house of prayer, listen, for all nations but you have turned it into a den of thieves. In saying this, Jesus was indicting the spiritual leaders in Israel for not fulfilling the role God had called the nation to fulfill. And that was to be a light to the Gentiles, a spiritual light, to light their way to God, the God of Israel. You know, somewhere along the line, along the way, the Jews got the idea that God hated the Gentiles. In fact, the rabbis taught in Jesus' day the only reason God created the Gentiles was to fuel the fires of hell. Nothing could have been farther from the truth. It's true that God separated his people from the Gentiles and didn't, you know, because he wanted to keep the messianic line pure for Messiah's coming. But right after Messiah was born and the church started, right away God said, no more lines of distinction, no more walls of separation. Peter, you go to the house of Cornelius, we're going to open this whole deal up to the Gentiles as well because it was always God's heart to reach out to the Gentiles to save them. In fact, way back when Abram was called by God to come into a covenant relationship with him, Abram became Abraham. Remember how that Abraham, or I should say Abram, okay, started out in life living in what we know as modern-day Babylon or uh, Iraq as an idol-worshipping Gentile. Okay? Abraham, Abram was an idol-worshipping Gentile when God called him out from the Ur of the Chaldees to cross over the Euphrates to go to a land that God 
was giving to him and his descendants. When Abram crossed over the Euphrates, he became a Hebrew. The word Hebrew means one who crosses over. And that began the start of a whole new race of people. So the Jews, those Hebrews, started out as Gentiles. And God told Abram, in you, that is, in your seed, the Messiah, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And another place in the Old Testament, he said, that you are to be a light to the Gentiles. You see, God wanted Israel to be an object lesson to the entire world. That any nation, any people, that would make the Lord their God and obey what he has said, would enter into a covenant with him and be just as blessed as God was blessing Israel. And somewhere along the line, the Jews felt that God only loved them. There's a lot of denominations today that believe that God only loves them. Okay, I've seen some Baptists who think that God only loves them. I've seen Catholics who think that only the Catholic Church is true Christianity. I grew up in the Catholic Church, all right? I know that for a fact. So a lot of Catholics who think Protestants are just playing, we're the real deal. Well, God loves everybody, the whole world, but, he is, but all those who receive his son are part of his family. And he doesn't play favorites. He's no respecter of persons. But the outer court, again, known as the court of the Gentiles, was called that because it was supposed to be the place where Gentile seekers could come and talk to the priests about the God of Israel. See, God wanted the court of the Gentiles to be a place of witnessing where these Gentile seekers could come and be brought to him. But instead, it had been turned into an evil place, not of witnessing, but of merchandising, where the Gentiles would come and no doubt see all the corruption, all the merchandising, become disgusted, many of them, turn around, walk away, and write off the God of Israel. So this area was actually was having the very opposite effect of what God wanted for it. Instead of bringing Gentiles to him, it was driving them away, all because of the witness of these corrupt priests and religious leaders. And I think that's exactly what's happening today in many churches. Many churches today, people come to these churches wanting to know more about God. You know, we call our nation a Christian nation, but we are in a post-Christian era. And um, a lot of people don't know really about God. They have no... They think they know who he is, but they really don't. And so the Holy Spirit starts tugging on their hearts to know him. What do you do? You go to church, right, to find God. They walk into a church to find God, and, and what do they see? What, what do they find instead? Well, they find churches where pastors talk incessantly about money and are more concerned about material possessions than lost souls. And I've talked to some about, well, have you checked out Christianity? Yes, I have. I've gone to church. Well, what made you stop? Because every church I went to, all they did was talk about money. It was disgusting. I wanted to know about God. All I kept hearing about was money. And so many of them walk away and write off God, the God of Christianity. And so first of all, the church, which is the temple of the, of the living God today, is to be a place of prayer, yes, but along with that, the idea of worship and evangelism. It's kind of all lumped together in the idea of prayer in this passage. Number two, the church is to be a healing place. A healing place. Verse 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple, overturned the tables, the money changers, and the seats of those who sold doves. Verse 14, then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
When I say that the church is to be a healing place, I don't primarily mean physical healing, although God still heals many uh, physically today. And certainly verse 14 does indicate that Jesus healed the blind and the lame that came to him physically. But you notice Matthew only mentions the blind and lame coming to Jesus to be healed in the temple, right? Now, if you're like me, I'm very conscious when I read my Bible of little things, okay? I like to read my Bible as a detective looking for clues because the Holy Spirit puts them all over the place. Now, there was no doubt many others who came to Jesus looking to be healed from many different kinds of diseases and infirmities. But the Holy Spirit, working through Matthew, chooses only to record the blind and the lame. Why is that? Well, when you see that, to me, it's like a little bit of a thing where the Holy Spirit is trying to, to show us that he wants us to apply this passage spiritually also. Not just physically, but spiritually. Because the temple, or the church today, is to be a place of healing for the spiritually blind and lame. And so to emphasize this one more time, the church is to be a place of evangelism where unbelievers can come and hear, listen to me, the true gospel. Not a social gospel, but a saving gospel. Because only the gospel of Jesus Christ can open eyes, open the spiritual eyes of the blind and show people for the first time maybe in their entire life that they are no accident, that they are no accident. Our society is, our schools are training our kids to think that they're just a big accident. There's no purpose in life. There's no deity that made them. Just the chemical mutations and genetic accidents over millions of years, and here we are, from goo to you. That's the general idea. That's oversimplifying it, but that's what you're getting <laughs> in a lot of schools today, every public school. And these kids grew up thinking that I have no purpose, there's no purpose to life, you know, there's no purpose to life, um, there's no meaning. And they live their lives as if there's no meaning, you know. I mean, if you teach kids they came from animals, it shouldn't surprise us when they grow up to act like animals. But when a person comes to a good church, and they hear the true gospel. And they receive Christ. Their eyes are open for the first time in their life. And they realize, I am no accident. God made me for a purpose. God said, before you were ever made on the earth, I knew you. I formed you in the womb. I knew everything about you. I love you with an everlasting love. And I have set aside a purpose for your life. That's a powerful message. When somebody has grown up in a world of confusion and meaninglessness. But listen, guys, the spirit-filled church is also to be a place where the spiritually lame, and I mean by that the weak, the weary, the broken, the downtrodden, can come and know that they're not going to be judged or kicked when they're down. I mean, a church should be a healing place, a safe place, where people who have been beat up can come and find people who are not going to judge them or kick them when they're down, but they're going to come around them and, and, and stoop down and pick them up and strengthen them and, and, and walk with them and, and hold them up until they're strong enough to walk themselves with the Lord. Turn to Galatians chapter 6. Because in Galatians 6, Paul talks about this very thing. He's talking to the churches of Galatia. 
which was not a, a city, it was a region. But he's talking to them about what we as Christians should do to those or for those who are weak. In Galatians 6, starting in verse 1, it says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Greek word translated overtaken means to be caught up or tripped up. Caught up or tripped up. Trespass is a Greek word that doesn't refer to a long-term sin, but speaks of someone who wants to do what's right, who is trying to live rightly before God, but is weak and stumbles occasionally in their walk with Him. They need a little help walking at times. We have people that, you know, they get saved and they've got a lot of baggage and they're in bondage to certain things, and it's going to take time for them to learn how to walk with the Lord consistently. In the meantime, they're going to stumble and fall a lot as they keep getting entangled with the old things of the old life. But what are we supposed to do? As soon as they fall, again, we run over and kick them, you worthless bum, you know. What are we supposed to do? Well, the response should be to stoop down and help them through encouragement and love to, you know, restore them back to the Lord, to help them in their walk with Him. Now look, I'm not talking about those who are living in ongoing, unrepentant sin. There are some folks that come into the church, and I'm not sure why. They really don't want to let go of their old life. They really don't want to change. We talk to them, and they say, oh, yeah, I want to change, but it's obvious they really don't. There is no effort being put in. There is no brokenness over their sin. And here they are. And you folks are so kind, you rally around them, you put a lot of energy and time and maybe even money in helping them, but it's the same old thing over and over again. You talk, we talk to them about, look, you need to break this off. You're living with your boyfriend or girlfriend, this is a sin against God, you're a Christian now, or you're supposed to be. Yeah, they don't change. For those folks, we need to rebuke them and disfellowship them until they get their life right with God. But we're not talking about those folks. Right here, we're talking about people who do love the Lord, who do want to change, but they're having a hard time. If somebody is really wanting to change, they're, they're in bondage to alcohol or, or, or pornography or something else, and they're broken over it, they're weeping, they're coming and asking for prayer, because they don't have victory right away, we don't take it out of the church or, you know, we don't want to deal with you anymore. As long as we see there's a, a sincere desire to, to walk with God, that will come right around you, rally around you. That's what we're supposed to do. That's our heart. But those people that refuse to change and are only playing games, we, we can't help you. You need to go back into the world, as Paul said, let the world beat up on them some more, and maybe it'll tenderize their heart and they'll get ready to get right with God. But I'm just talking here, the, the passage Paul is talking about those who desperately want to walk with God, but have something that is hindering or crippling them in their walk. And so he says, look, if any of you are overtaken with a trespass, listen, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. The word restore there is a Greek word that means to put in order so as to restore to its former condition. It was used, in secular Greek this word was used, as a medical term for setting a fractured or dislocated bone. In fact, the same Greek word is used in Mark 1, verse 19, of the apostles who were mending their nets. I don't have to tell you guys, some of you are here this morning. 
There are a lot of people that have been beaten up pretty badly in life. Sometimes a lot of it's because of their own doings, bad choices, habits, whatever. Sometimes it's because of what others have done to you. But regardless, they come into the church and they're pretty beaten up. What they need is a loving, nurturing environment. They need a spiritual and emotional trauma center, so to speak, where they can come and be mended and healed. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ is to be to these folks, a healing place, a safe zone, uh, you know, where the righteous can run into, you know, who are beaten up, and they can find others who will rally around them and pray with them and so on. Instead, what we see in many churches today is a lot of legalism. A lot of legalism. Churches are full of legalistic Christians who are critical-hearted and condemning towards the faults and failures of weaker brethren because that's what legalism does. It looks down on everybody who is not walking like I am. Okay? What do you mean you got a problem with cigarettes? I've never had a problem with cigarettes. What do you mean you have a problem with your temper? I'm always calm and sweet, you know? <laughs> Give me a break. But, you know, it, legalism compares itself with others who are weaker and prone to failure and looks down on them. See, a church where the Spirit is is full of grace. And grace says, I know I'm weak. I know I can't do anything apart from God's grace. And boy, is he patient with me. Boy, has he been gracious to me over the years when I've done some boneheaded things and gotten involved with sin and, and I've come to him and I've confessed it and the Lord is so kind and so patient and he picks me up and we walk together again and so on. How can I be hard on somebody else who is struggling with sin knowing that I struggle with sin too? And because God is so good to me and so kind and gracious to me, I want to, be, I want to be kind and gracious and good to those who are weak in their walk with him. That's a gracious church. Legalism, on the other hand, and you find churches and Christians like this, I mean, they wouldn't say like this openly, but they're thinking it, I guarantee you. Okay? The legalist says, I'm worthy, I'm able. And if I can do it, I expect everyone else to live like I'm living. Okay? And if you can't, it means you're so carnal, or maybe you're not even saved. Either way, I don't have time for you. Because I can't hang out with people who are not as perfect as me, is the idea. They wouldn't say it that way, but that's how they're feeling. All right. The church is to be a house of prayer and worship and evangelism. The church is to be a healing place. Number three, the church is to be a place where Jesus is honored and exalted. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. The Greek is furious. And said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants you have perfected praise. That's a quote from Psalm 8 verse 2. What an indictment this was, though, to the hypocritical, uh, the hypocrisy and corruption of the spiritual leaders in Jesus' day. Apparently, greed and theft in the temple didn't bother them. But people praising Jesus did. The word children there in verse 15 actually is a Greek word that means boys and probably refers to young guys. 
uh, probably around the age of 13, who had just been bar mitzvahed, they became a son of the law, which means they were now considered old enough to keep God's law. They were responsible. They were considered now an adult. And when they were bar mitzvah, these young guys, they lived close enough to Jerusalem, would go to Jerusalem for Passover, their first Passover as a man, an adult. And that's probably who was there. These were young people. Now, of course, Jesus quoted uh, from the Old Testament about babes and nursing uh, infants, but the idea was that, you know, even the smallest child innately, it's not hard for a child, a small child even, to, to praise God. Because God seems to have placed in each child's heart a knowledge of him. It takes a lot of years to beat it out of them, okay? But here are these young people, you know, you, you, teenagers, young teenagers. They are praising Jesus. They're calling him son of David. That was a messianic term. They're calling him the Messiah. Hosanna means save now. They see him as the savior of the nation. This infuriated this, the, these Jewish leaders, so-called, because in their mind... Jesus was not who he claimed to be. He was not the Messiah. And they were furious that these youngsters had the audacity to praise him as Messiah when these older doctors of the law had rejected him. Isn't it interesting how sometimes the older people in the church are the most out of touch with the Spirit? Once again, when Calvary Chapel first started back in the 60s, do you realize as God began to touch the hippies, these, these are kids, drugged out kids, okay? And the Holy Spirit began to touch them and save them. And one of the first things that happened was these kids began to sing new songs to the Lord. They began to write choruses. And they just reflected their newfound faith and love for the Lord. Do you know how much that infuriated some of the established people, the pastors and leaders in the, the denominational churches and established churches? They were so furious because who are these kids to think that they're Christians? You know, dressing like hippies still and not cutting their hair, wearing bare feet in the church and writing these, these choruses. When these kids got, came into the church, the suits went, the hymns went. So what? Get with it. What's more important, suits and hymns or God touching a new generation for Christ? Every generation has new music attached to it. Because God says, sing to me a what? New song, not an old hymn. And don't misunderstand me, I love the old hymns. But to say that, that's the only things we should be singing, songs from 400 years ago, uh, come on. And these spiritual leaders, so-called, couldn't get their minds around that these young people actually were more in touch with the Holy Spirit than they were. And here they're praising God, as if because they were nobodies, they were young guys, just had been bar mitzvahed, and these were the doctors of the law of theology. How could these kids know anything more than we know? Well, they knew a lot more than they knew. It's like a lot of young people. Do you realize that some of the greatest revivals in the history of the church, God has used young people to start? Check it out. And I'm including Calvary Chapel. See, the, the scribes and priests were furious because they wouldn't accept Jesus for who he really was, and refused to honor him. And there are many churches today that give Jesus lip service, but they will not honor him, exalt him, or accept him for who he really is. We spend a lot of time on this. I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to throw a couple things out for you to think about. Jesus is called the Word of God, right? He said, the volume of the book is written of me. The Bible is Jesus in print, you might say. 
when you honor the Bible, you honor Jesus. You know, many church leaders and churchgoers today don't accept the Bible as the inspired and errant word of God. They deny that and promote the very things God has forbidden in his word. Things like homosexuality, killing the innocent through abortion, all kinds of different immoralities, all the while thinking themselves wonderful, tolerant, open-minded Christians. But also, we know that Jesus is the virgin-born Son of God who died for our sins and rose from the dead the third day. Do you know that many liberal churches deny all of that? They don't honor the true Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, they have a Jesus. And don't forget what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11. There are those who have come preaching a different Jesus in another gospel. We're seeing that today. Churches that give Jesus lip service, pretend to honor him. But their Jesus is not my Jesus, you know. You ask them, who's Jesus? Oh, he was a wonderful teacher. A great moral example for all of us to learn from. Yeah, but was he the son of God? Oh, no. Did he come to die for our sins? Sin? No, there's no such thing as sin. It's all relative, you know. What's right for you may not be right for me, vice versa, but there is no such thing as sin. Well, that's not my Jesus. You see, my Jesus is the one who came from heaven. God who became man through the virgin birth. My Jesus lived the perfect life and yes, was an example for us of how to live. But went to the cross eventually to die for our sins because without his blood being shed for us, we could not have fellowship with God for eternity. On the third day, my Jesus stepped from that tomb alive. And the Bible says he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead and to establish a kingdom that will never end. And if you want to be a part of that kingdom, then my Jesus says, bow the knee to me now. Turn your life over to me. Repent of your sins. Come to me. I will receive you. And you will be my child. And you will live with me forever. Reject me. Now I'll reject you then. But these, many of these pastors and liberal theologians today, they have a Jesus that is a false Jesus. They fail to honor the true Jesus. And so, guys, we wrap it up. When the church becomes a place of prayer, worship, and evangelism, when it becomes a healing place where love is practiced, not legalism, a place where Jesus is exalted and his word is taught faithfully, then listen to me, then the church will become a place of power. Verse 15, But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did, let me stop there, it's talking about his miraculous power being demonstrated. Look, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is life, right? There is liberty. There is power for lives to change. You can always tell a Spirit-filled church because it's a church where there's life, where there's power, where people come, receive Christ, and their lives actually change. Dead churches don't change anybody. They just add people to their role, okay? But their lives don't change. They take on a form of godliness, but it's all religion. It's all external. There's nothing that happens in the heart. But a true spirit-filled church is a place where Jesus is exalted, the word of God is honored, where evangelism is taking place because we want to see other people getting saved, prayer and so on. And I'll tell you what, that's a place where there's going to be power for life to change. We are warned in the word of God that the last day's church would be loaded with apostasy, 
compromise, corruption, idolatry, greed, and spiritual blindness that would cause people in many of these churches to think that physical wealth would be a proof that God's blessing and approval was upon them. Read Revelation chapters 2 and 3. Especially the last church, the church of Laodicea, was a very wealthy church. It speaks of the last day's church. A lot of very wealthy, large churches today who think because they're wealthy and large, God must be really blessing them. God's with them. Not every big church is bad. But I'll tell you what, in the last days, many of them will be. And we see that today. There is one faithful church spoken of. We'll end with this. One last day's church referred to in Revelation 3 that is a faithful church. It's called the Church of Philadelphia. Listen to me. It's not any one church. It's made up of all churches that love the Lord and are honoring Him today, whether they be Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches, independent churches. All the churches that are honoring Jesus and teaching His Word belong under the Philadelphia category. Let me read to you what Jesus writes to this church. He dictates this letter to the Apostle John. Revelation 3, starting in verse 7, he said, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know all the things you do, and I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have a little strength, and by that I interpret it to mean you're not a very big church. You're, not very, you're small. And of course, in the eyes of the other churches who are big, or in the eyes of the world, small churches are failures. Isn't it interesting how that, as God sees a church, Size does not matter. It's the heart. In the last days, the smaller churches are going to be the most successful, and the larger churches many times will be the biggest failures. But Jesus said, look, you have a little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny my name. You deny Jesus' name when you make him less than what he really is. You say he's a good teacher, but not God Almighty. He said in verse 10, Because you have obeyed my command to persevere, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. And I interpret that to be a promise that he's going to rapture his church out of here before the judgment comes. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. So that no one will take away your crown. And all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the last day's churches. Wow. He's coming soon. He's coming soon. And I want him to find us faithful. That's all he desires. Just be faithful to the end. And I'll give you a crown of life. So may God give us grace. I'm not saying our church is anywhere near perfect. We have a long way to go. But I thank God for the hearts, the people, for you guys, for your hunger for the word, your seriousness in prayer your desire to see people saved, you're not playing games. You're not here because you want a comfortable environment, a social group. You're here because you want to be a member of the body of Christ and do the work he's calling us to do.
May God give us grace to finish that work. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth. Your word instructs us, Lord. And Father, as our passage today points out many things that we need to take to heart, things that the church must never be, and the things that the church must be. Give us grace, Lord, to focus on what we must be. And by your grace, we ask you to add to us, Lord, a heart, a greater heart for prayer and the word, a greater burden for the lost, a greater desire, Lord, to exalt you not only in church but in our private lives by being faithful to you unto the end. Lord, give us grace to walk with you each day, to keep our eyes on the finish line. And that, Lord, even though our church is never going to be a mega church, that's fine. I don't care about that. Give us grace to be a faithful church, a church that loves you, loves your word, and is, will never deny your name. We just praise you, Lord, and thank you for all these things. In Jesus' precious name, Father, give us grace to be faithful to the end. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.